Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. It's like almost like an energy that's given off. It's like almost like a an at peace, like just level type of energy that I feel. Maybe the peace is not the word that we should be using, like because you're not life is not peaceful, right? Like it's it's no. even from a spiritual point of view, it's a struggle and it's a battle. Um, I, I think the difference is, is that if you have the tools to deal with the battle, like to fight it properly and effectively or not, um, that's the, I think that's the big, um, thing, like the people who kind of exude or they give off a type of calmness, even in the face of like adversity, as opposed to people who don't have those tools. Um, so it's not so much being at peace, but rather, um, maybe be more peaceful like like people ask me for i'll give you an example uh, a practical example because it's just easy as that way um so for example uh i deal with a lot of death and sickness right because that's the nature of my job right so a lot of times i'm spending a lot of time with people who are suffering um in hospitals on their deathbeds um you know in their homes like but you know usually when people are suffering and so you know, when people say, oh, what did, you, what, what did you do today, father, right? It's like, well, you know, I went I went to this one person and he's like on his deathbed, he's about to pass away. And then I went to a hospital and this other person's ready to die and they're suffering. And then I went to see this person. And they say, oh, you know, like, I don't know how you deal with that. And you're not so, you're not upset or stressed all the time. Um, are you desensitized to it? And so, you know, and my, my at least person, I can only speak personally. I can't speak for other priests, but... Um, I'm not desensitized to it. I don't think I'm desensitized to it. But the way you handle those situations, like your outlook on life is different. So, for example, like for me, I don't lose sleep. I don't lose sleep over people um, who are in bad situations, not because I don't care, but because it's just like it's part it's in the program, right? It's part of life. And uh, I'm going to be there at some point and, um, you know, there's – you're gonna you, there's suffering and there's death and there's there's also birth and joys and it's all like you, you kind of look at life at a, at, a, at a grander scheme and because we we as priests we see it more uh more often uh than the average person your perspective is different yeah. like for for the average lay person you're dealing like with one of those at a time maybe mm-hmm. maybe two so someone's gonna die in your family it consumes the whole family you're dealing with that right yeah. Or someone's getting married, okay, people are into that, right? Or someone's yeah. being baptized, but the priest can see all that in one day. Right. And multiple times a week. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of priests you know are, are struggling with things like depression and this. And so what are then some of the, the tools that, that help you and other people you know that, you know, that others can relate to and use in their lives? Because, like, you know, a lot of people are going through this stuff, especially in a world today. So what are some of those tools and things that sort of keep you level? So, um, yeah. So, you know, 
you have to have, you know, you hear a lot of people, they talk about balance and, you know, work-life balance and things like that. And that is really important, but it's more than that. Like, you know, definitely um, a lot of people who are struggling, especially clergy, uh, they don't have a balance, right? And what do I mean by that is that they give everything to the church in the sense that they they will give themselves wholeheartedly to the to the ministry but they don't keep anything back for their families for their children for themselves right to the to their detriment some many times so you know uh, you're running around like doing 60 hour work weeks and then meanwhile you've missed your children's soccer games you've missed your children's pageants at school you you don't know who they are because you're missing bedtime with them or you're missing dinner time or you don't know who your wife is anymore because you haven't seen her because, you know, she's working and you're working and, you know, there's no time. So, of course, this is a problem in a lot of professions, not just priesthood. But I find that in ministry, um, the reason why this happens, people think, well, it's because the priest is a good guy and he wants to help everybody. That's not the reason. The reason is ego. Hmm. So the, the ego is always the the driving force, right? So, and why do I say that? It's like, you know, if we didn't have ego, then we would understand that God is not that we what we what we do doesn't matter. But in the end, God is in control of everything. And there is a plan. And we can't save everybody. We don't save anybody. God saves people, right? Like, only the only thing that priests do is that priests facilitate, I always like say the priests facilitate the encounter with God, mm-hmm. right? Or really, that's what the priest should be doing. So it's, the priest is not saving anyone. The priest, it's not his church. It's not his ministry. And they're not his people. They are God's people. And the priest is a functionary. The priest is like, you know, he's put in a place to lead. And if he sucks or if he's no good or whatever, the church can take it away. And that, and, and if you understand that, then you understand that you can't, you can't save everyone. So if you think you can save everyone, that's when you burn out because you're running always. There's always somebody else hurt. There's always somebody else who's in who's in trouble. There's always somebody who wants you, who wants to, who needs something, right? If you don't learn how to say no sometimes because you get sick, um, understand your limitations, then you're gonna you're gonna go in a downward spiral. So that's that's really I think the. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So when you say ego, do you, do you see it as like, like the negative context of ego where like the priest is like, it it feels like it's all about them and they want like the spotlight or it's more like ego because like they, they genuinely want to help that individual and not think of it like, you know, it's God's people or is it, Um, it's it's ego. When I refer to ego in this sense, I I mean the negative aspect and it is, it doesn't have to be all about the priest in the sense like I want to be popular or I want to whatever, but it is, it is the sense that the priest has a God complex. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he's going to save. He thinks mm. it's him doing it and he's not. Yeah. And that's, that's a problem because you're not, it's not your job to save people. Right. Um, and so it's still bad. And, and, and some of it is also popularity. It's like, well, if you're the priest that you don't want to upset anybody, and you want to be the popular guy and you want to be liked by everybody, then that's going to, that's going to compromise your ministry because, and, and I'm only, I speak for myself. I'm not speaking about other priests. Like I speak about my own, I'm 14 years now priest and um, I've gone through the phases, right? Yeah. It took me a long time. Um, 
I would say it took me about a decade, a decade of doing the wrong thing. Like I worked hard, okay, successful, whatever that means as far as uh, in the parish and things like that. And But internally, I was doing the wrong things, right? Because I was running um, and then you, 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 you begin to sit back and you analyze, well, why am I doing it? Am I doing it because I love my people? Of course, there's a part of that. But how much am I doing because of it feeds my own ego, my own pride? Like, yeah. you know, do I need to say yes to everybody or can I say, no, I can't do this or I don't have the capacity to do this or I don't have the knowledge base to advise you on this or there's somebody better than me or I'm just too tired and I have to physically rest um, even if that disappoints parishioners, right? So I, I, I learned that the hard way, getting to the point where I was, you know, extremely overweight and, um, and I didn't have any time for myself and or my family and, um, and just like, just feeling really down and burned out all the time. Right. And I had to kind of like rejig my whole life um, and kind of find that balance. Now I feel like I'm in the special last three, four years. Um, I'm in a much better position mm-hmm. uh, where I don't feel bad about saying no to people. Yeah. Not from an egotistical selfish point of view, but just from a, an understanding that, this is my capacity. This is what I can do effectively. These are the things I can't do. And I, I, I can't be ashamed to say the things that I can't do. And I have to have that balance, right? With my family, my life, and my personal recreation and, and yeah. uh, fitness that, and things like that, right? I think that makes a lot of sense. So because you said it, like what, what obviously success is very uh, subjective. So what does success mean to you then as a priest? Well, this is the thing, right? It's like, that's a very complex question because, um, you know, it's like different priests see it differently, right? It's like, is a full church successful? Maybe. But what if that church is full of people who are there because they like the priest, not because they love Christ? Right? Yeah. And then that priest leaves or he gets transferred and the church empties. Did the, did the priest do his job? Not really. No. Right? Because he created a cult of the personality. Yeah. And um, so it's like, you know, what is what is success? I would say that if you can somehow uh, effectively point people to Christ and, and what does that mean? Like if you can somehow inspire people to love the church more than they love you or a specific aspect, like, you know, you know, uh, then I think you've done your job. So what does that mean? It means that people should love their community. So let's say I leave, let's say one day I get transferred, whatever, and I have to go somewhere else. Right. If, if people stay, connected to their home parish regardless of what priest comes and they continue to do the good work of like you know charity and philanthropy and um you know supporting you know then i think you've taught them the right thing you've taught them humility and to be connected to a community and to sacrifice and to to volunteer and and to keep helping their local community which is what they should be doing regardless of what priest is there um and if everything falls apart when you leave then yeah. I don't know how if, if I planted the right roots, right? I know we've spoke about this in the past. So I, like for you specifically, I think um, like you're you're a priest who is very relatable to a lot of young people and millennials, and you know you 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 talk like us, you you look like us, like you know you 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 get you get us, and so I think a lot of people are and I'm speaking about you uh, are are drawn are connected, are, are getting more involved with the church, you know, because of you in that relation, which is, I think is a positive thing uh, overall. 
but do you think it's difficult to, um, to, to go further than that? Where like, if you do leave, for example, where like you're building that connection in the people with Christ directly. I think, I think obviously relationships are important. And of course it makes a difference what kind of priest you have or what kind of leaders you have. And of course you want good leaders, right? But that's only the beginning. That's not the end of the, um, of the process, right? Like if the priest is good or relatable or he's a good speaker or he does nice sermons or he has a nice voice, like all these are positives, but they can't be ends in themselves. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. So, so that's like the hook. That's the net, you know, to catch the fish, right? Like it's like you have a good net, sure, but that can't be the end. Like that can't no. be that. That's just the process by which you introduce people to Christ. So if the priest uses his skills, which are given to him by God, they're not his, um, to bring people closer, great. But if he's bringing people closer to himself, right, this is a problem. And, and, and we have this tendency in orthodoxy. Uh, unfortunately, I find that we have, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, it exists in Greece, but it exists especially in the Western world as well. There is this strange tendency, maybe because we just, it's, our, it's also our culture, the pop culture. Like it's like, we have hero worship, right? Yeah. We tend, not all people, but a, a, a bigger part, a greater part of the population tends to gravitate towards kind of guru mentality, right? Yeah. I right. found this awesome priest. I found this awesome monk. I found this, you know, and I understand people are trying to find an escape from the mundane, from the everyday, right? And when they find somebody who's authentic or somebody who's good and loving, they latch on. But the danger is that it becomes what we call in Greek prosopolatria, which is idolatry of the person, of the prosopon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and then it just becomes another golden calf. It's not Christ, right? It's the person. Yeah. And so it's really, it's a fine line. Like, and, and, and I think a good priest needs to like know when to push, like when to kind of like grow and also when to pull back. Like if he sees there's idolatry of, of, of himself, maybe he needs to come out of the spotlight for a while. Mm-hmm. and let people go off and like explore other things yeah. um, not other religions i mean but like i mean explore other parishes and let go of um yeah. success or the, the numbers right yeah no i i get that and i would imagine like casting the net is the easy part but like go, going that step further and, and getting people yes. actually connect that's i can see that being very difficult mm-hmm. it's more nuanced right yeah and it's like and it's easy to say, oh, this is great. All these people are coming, right? And But deep down, there's a voice saying they're coming for me. Yeah. So yeah. you have to temper that. You have to say, mm, maybe it's time that I stop doing this or I find a way to do it more indirectly so that it's not about me, but it's you have to somehow somehow find a way to push the, the spotlight back onto Christ. And that's been a hard lesson for myself, even like just to kind of how do you even do that and how yeah. do you, you know... It's I'd hard. imagine. It's I'd imagine so for sure. Um, okay, I was switching gears a little bit here. So sure. Um, I don't know if it's always been like this, or if it's because I'm, I'm just paying more attention in my adult life. But I, I feel like Canada and the policies and a lot of legislation that's that's we're seeing in our country is based on just ideologies rather than logic and what's best for mm-hmm. the population and society as a whole. So. <laughs> I'm curious to just get, there's a few uh, bills that I, I just want to run through and sort of get your perspective on them from like the, you know, the church and spiritual 
point of view um, sure. on some policy. So first one, which I'm sure, you know, like Bill C-11 basically gives the government right or could give the government right to regulate speech online, which, you know, includes podcasts like we're on and you have your own yeah. podcast and, and things like that. And um, w- when you give a, a central authority like the government, that type of authority and compared to, you know, how, how society is very secular now and like what you talk about as a priest might be controversial to to some factions of society, including government. So how are you sure. viewing this, this bill? Does that concern you for, for not only your work, but like society as a whole? Like, what are your general thoughts on that? So talking about concepts, because, you know, usually Orthodox priests, they, they, uh, I, some get political. And then I think that personally, like at least for, as a, as a priest, you know, when you're in the church and you're preaching, you, you shy away from politics. Why? Because you don't want to alienate your, your congregations. But this is a concept. Like this is more of like a, this idea of without talking about parties or whatever. Um, I think it's, of course, it's concerning because from a from an Orthodox point of view, um, you know, the, our whole faith is based on the idea of freedom, right? Like it's, it's based on love, of course, the love of God, but also the idea of free will, right? So we're, we're free to reject or accept the love of God, to, to accept or reject the concept of God or, or the truth as God reveals it, right? And in a society, in a functioning society, which I think that, you know, Western society, everybody likes to bash Western society. Oh, it's secular, you know, especially like a lot of Christians and Orthodox, like, oh, you know, it's a secular, non-Christian society. But the, the, the one positive that has been the constant up to this moment that I think is also under attack, unfortunately, is this idea that in a pluralistic society, you have freedom of speech, you have freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and you have this idea that you can respect other human beings, even though you disagree with them, right? So this is something that has has been at the cornerstone of a good functioning Western society and democratic society, right? Both in the United States and, and in Canada, more so in the United States, because it's more ingrained in their, in their constitution than it is in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these are really important concepts. Whether I agree or disagree with another human being, I should be allowed to express, right? Yeah. Um, and so these types of laws that are being implemented now are, are dangerous because what they do is, it doesn't matter whether you're left or right or center, whether you're an atheist or religious, whatever, it attacks everybody's ability to express themselves. It attacks everybody's ability to, um, to think, because, you know, Jordan Peterson says this, you know, it's like, in order to be able to think, you need to be able to risk offending others, right? And to be able to express openly, right? And freely in a conversation, right? Um, so now when you start seeing like these types of things come in, you have like the thought police, police coming in, right? And it's like, well, if you don't tow certain party lines or certain, you know, predominant or, or dominant views, or maybe even, you know, I don't even think they're dominant views. I think they're, they're um, these type of extreme views of, um, you know, uh, speech and uh, offense and all these kind of things. They're actually a minority of people that believe these things, but they are the most vocal and they're in positions of power. So they're, they're impressing it on the rest of the population. Uh, I think this is very dangerous for us because, yeah. you know, I, I will, I will gladly accept uh, somebody else saying things that I find completely abhorrent um, in, in, in the pursuit of, of freedom of speech that, that I am also able to speak the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, you know what I mean? And so once you stifle your enemy or once you muzzle your enemy, you also muzzle yourself, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything, obviously. And it's it's crazy to me um, how something so logical and basic is, is has become political and partisan and, and crazy to me. But um, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, next one here is uh, this Bill 89. This is specific to Ontario. It's uh, Supporting Children, Youth and Families Act. So this basically governs uh, child protection, among other things. So, so one of the amendments to this bill was that it now asks judges to take into account a child's gender identity and gender expression. And one part that's interesting in this bill is that, re- uh, and I'm quoting it, religious faith, if any, in which the child is being raised, uh, that is, has been removed uh, as a matter right. to be considered when determining uh, the best interest. It, it, was, it, was, it was scrubbed from the bill completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so from the previous legislation, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's no longer there. So, um, thoughts on that? Like, what? What do you? It's problematic. It's problematic. Uh, again, you don't have to be a Christian to find this problematic, right? I think any logical person would find this problematic because, it, again, it's like the previous legislation. Because this was passed. This particular bill was passed like a few years ago. It was passed yeah. actually when Kathleen Wynne was still premier. I think 2017, right? I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and nobody noticed because, you know, our constituents, nobody paid attention. It was just quietly passed through the Ontario legislature. And I and I read this when it, when it was being debated. I actually read the bill. And, yeah, of course, the average person is not going to read it because it's going to take like four hours to go through, which it took me. And it's tedious, right? But, yeah, yeah like um, one of the main things, and I, and I tell this to parents and they don't believe me. Or, they, you know, and I'm talking about people who are not religious. They're just... And, and people who are progressives or left-leaning, you know, and they're like, oh, this doesn't seem right. And I said, yeah, it's like basically the bill scrubbed and the, the actual word religion was scrubbed from the bill completely, right? So there is no mention of it. Whereas in the past, yeah, like in the sections that deal with CFS, right, Child, child Family Services, and in, in cases of abuse where a child needs to be taken out of the home and placed in foster care to mitigate stress on the child, right, um, you, you, of course, you would take into consideration um, you know, their background, their cultural background, their religious background, all these kind of things, because it's very, very stressful for a child to be taken out of their home, even if it's an abusive home and be placed with, with strangers. And so to have a child's religion not be taken into account, to be purposefully, dis, uh, you know, uh, taken out of the equation, I think is, is crazy. Um, it, it's going to, it would, it would create multiple problems. Like, so for example, if you have a, if you have, let's say a Muslim child that is re- removed from a Muslim household, for example, and then is placed in a Christian household or placed in a Buddhist household yeah. or placed in a Jewish household, that would probably be problematic for the child, right? Yeah. And would, do, you know, would place undue stress. So that is problematic. Um, of course, there's a political reason why religion has been taken out because there's a, there's, there's a push to kind of like, um, you know, sterilize, I guess you could say, uh, legislation from the word religion. It's become the bad word. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the, 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 the injection of, you know, uh, gender identity politics and things like that, um, you know, into kind of this legislation where, um, for example, it is considered child abuse um, to tell your child what gender they are, even if they're prepubescent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if one was so inclined, let's say a teacher or somebody else, an adult, uh, they could call CFS on your, uh, you know, if, if you have a little child who's like five years old or six yeah. years old, you know, and thinks that they're the opposite sex, 
uh, because children often play and don't understand these things and they're still kind of growing and forming their sexual identity and their, their core personality. Um, you know, and if the parent says, well, no, you're not a girl, you're a boy, for example, if it's a boy, um, that could be construed under this current legislation as child abuse because you're not affirming, yeah. um, you know, their, their gender identity, which is, of course, not even, it's not even science right now. It's, it's you know, it's, 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 it's a political ideology, right, that has infected kind of like um, the public sphere. It has nothing to do with actual child psychology or medicine or anything like that. Um, and then, you know, CFS could come in and take your child away for a period of three months. Yeah. Um, so these things are very scary, right? <laughs> Related to that one is Bill C4, just going through the list here. So this is makes um, Bill C4, it makes uh, conversion therapy of homosexuality and transgenderism illegal. So uh, in other words, um, Bill has very broad language, but you as a priest who holds very clear beliefs on like what gender and sex at birth is. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's you know sure. scientific, but it would be illegal for you to counsel someone that is going through this or, mm -hmm. or fighting this or explore or finding their, their sure. personality. So, so that's another one that, um, yeah. Um, it's interesting that the legislation kind of like is very broad and it, it, it has no nuance in it, right? So it's like, okay, look, you just conflated two different things, right? Uh, the, the, the actual legislation conflates, for example, uh, let's say the issue of homosexuality, right? Uh, and transgenderism. And they lump it in all together as if they're two of the same phenomenon. They're not at all. They're two different things, regardless of what the orthodox position is on it, right? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, they're not the same thing. They're two different things, right? Um, uh, one is a sexual orientation. The other one could be considered a mental disorder, according to the DSM-5 right now, mm -hmm. uh, the gender dysphoria, which is a very controversial thing, right? So they're not the same thing. And and the, the, the spiritual approach and the spiritual counseling would not be the same, nor do the Orthodox even engage in uh, what is called, uh, um, what's the word, uh, conversion therapy and things like that. We really don't have things like that. It's more of like a evangelical Protestant thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. You're right that, you know, anything that goes against kind of like the stated ideology, right, that you have to affirm whatever the person believes to be true as true would technically be illegal. Right. And this, this yeah. of course, puts the church and all Orthodox Christians and, and all, I would say, all traditional Christians, period, and many other traditional religions at, at, at odds with the government and with the law. Yeah. Right. Because it's not just Christianity, you know, yeah. Islam teaches the same thing and Judaism teaches the same thing. And yeah. Have you experienced a time uh, throughout your career as a priest where you, you felt um, religion like under attack in this way? Like, do you feel like it's it's under attack in any way? I think that um, the struggle, listen, the, the, the struggle of the faith of, of, of being a, a, a good Christian in, in the world is always the same, regardless of what generation you live in. It is true that in history, history is cyclical. We go through phases and it goes round and round and round, right? So the pendulum from a secular point of view swings from right to left, depending on the generation. And the church, if you look at the history of the church, the church is always like, uh, you know, uh, the rock, right? It doesn't move, right? It is the bastion of, yeah. of truth. It doesn't change. So sometimes the church finds itself in some eras uh, being favored by local governments because the, the society might be swinging to the right. 
And then there are eras where the, the, the society has swung far to the left and the church is at odds and also persecuted. Um, are we in an era where the pendulum has swung very far left? Yes, we are, of course. I don't think we're living in a right-wing conservative society at all, where we're living in a very left-wing uh, society. Uh, does it mean that that's not going to swing back the other way eventually? Of course it will, because history shows us that it always goes cyclical, right? Look, look, at, look at elections. Right? Look at look at the political sphere, right? Where it's like, especially in the states, more so than in Canada, because in Canada we have like a different system, and you know, a party can be in power much longer, right? But in the, in the American system, where you have forty-eight years, you know, presidency, right? Um, usually, always the pendulum swings, right? It's like it's like you have eight years of a Democrat, eight years of a conservative, eight years yeah. of a Democrat, you know, with 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 few exceptions, right? People, the society tends to swing, and this tension exists, right? Um, is the church under attack? Well, the church is always under attack. The church was under attack with them at the time of Christ. The church was under attack during the time of the apostles and the apostolic fathers. The church was even under attack even during the Byzantine Empire, where it's assumed that it was the Orthodox Christian Empire. You still had emperors who were decadent and who were secular and who were not really respectful of the church, right? Um, there's always something going on. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't change you know, it doesn't change what we are called to do. And what are we called to do? We are called to cultivate our own spirituality to the point where we can um, brave whatever comes our way with humility and with prayer, right? Sometimes we are called to stand up. Sometimes we are called to protest. But other times we're also called to accept things as they are and just to quietly pray about it, right? Without being too pretentious and to being too overly vocal in the sense that uh, to be like uh, arrogant or to be hypocrites, right? Um, so I think that our calling is always just to be, uh, in Greek we say stafiri, you know, to be stable in our faith, not to be, not to blow with the wind, yeah, right? Yeah. And not to be afraid even when things seem very, very scary, like like now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, for sure. One more, which I didn't know, uh, I, I stumbled on this one recently, but made. Yeah medical assistance and dying. Um, yeah. It, it essentially allows anyone over the age of 18 to apply for MAID as, as literally as long as you have an OHIP card and you have yeah. suffering that is not deemed treatable to you, which yeah. um, that's pretty much the criteria. And that, that, that's not even the most concerning, concerning thing. Starting next year, March 2023, mental illness will no longer be an exclusion for MAID. And like a lot yes. of professionals and doctors and experts yep. they're expecting the number of made patients if you can call them to to skyrocket like how yeah so so this is you know it the the society that we live in it's it's a so it's not even going to be conditions that are not treatable because it's it's a it's a subjective criteria right it's yeah. it's unbearable suffering according to the patient right right so and, and who's going to tell you right that you're wrong and so if i if i say well you know i'm sick and and even if there is a treatment i'm suffering unbearably uh, and i want to take my own life so basically it's just basically the legalization of suicide right right um so yeah like this is not surprising. Like this is the, the, the movement, a society, generally speaking, when, when, if you, if you desacralize the beginnings and ends of life, this is something that my old, my old professor, Father John Bear at St. Vladimir's had said in a really good talk once. He said that the beginning 
all of life is sacred, from, at least from an Orthodox point of view, right? And this is why every stage in life is accompanied by prayer and by by um, like a sacramental kind of approach. So, you know, when, when a person, you know this, when you had your babies, you know, your wife had her baby, you know, it's like I come to the house and, you know, there's, there's a blessing of the child for the first day and the eighth day. And then we have the 40 day blessing and then we have baptism and then we have marriage and you have all these major stages of life all the way to death. Right. And so for us, every stage of life is sacred. Um, what happens is that in society, um, especially in Western culture, but you can see this even in like Western Europe as well, we have desacralized life, generally speaking, we've made it more secular and especially the beginnings and ends of life. So if you notice like the beginning of life, right? So, how do we desacralize that? How, how do we take away the sanctity or the the, 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 the the sacramental element of it? Well, it's like, you know, we, we've made it commercialized. We've um, we've bypassed suffering for the woman, right? Mainly. So it's like, now it's like, uh, it, it, because of we have, because we have, you know, C-sections on demand, we have, uh, you know, use of drugs, things like that, which of course are good in some instances, right? But you see like that slowly, you know, ob- obstetricians right now are performing more, voluntary c-sections than they're performing natural births right the reason being is because people just kind of want to forego that whole process of birthing right and just kind of you know i'm going to plan you know i i want my my baby on this day because it's convenient for me right there's no waiting there's no humility in in, in, um you know and of course i i I realize how misogynistic that sounds for a male to say this right for speaking on behalf of women which of course i'm not um but this is females telling me this as well right um, so there's no waiting. There's no kind of like the surprise of what the gender is going to be. There's no, um, you know, um, there there's no kind of like, um, you know, battle to bring a life into the world, right? Uh, which we as Orthodox would say is important, right? There's just basically, okay, like I'm going to go. I'm going to schedule my C-section, right? Very, very clean, very clinical. Uh, you go in, baby comes out, 45 minutes, right? Of course, the recovery is hard, but it's it's very kind of like, and then, and then people, hard, a lot of Orthodox even don't even know about the prayers that they should call the priest. It's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of very secularized, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, at the end of life, we've also desacralized the end of life, right? So burial rituals are going by the wayside. A lot of, and I'll, I'm just speaking about Orthodox Christians, not even counting like everybody else, right? It's like, you know, we don't need to do the church service anymore. Um, you know, we don't, we, you know, just do a little prayer at the gravesite, one-stop shopping at the funeral homes. Um, you know, uh, uh, we don't need to do the, 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 the prayers, the nine day prayers, the three day prayers, the nine day prayers, the 40 day prayers, the memorials, uh, young people are not doing that for their family members anymore. Uh, or they don't even know the reason for it. They don't know how to, you know, prepare koliva, like the, the boiled wheat that we have, you know, all the, basically the rituals that we have for mourning. Yeah. People don't know those things anymore. They don't care. Um, people want to want to cremate because it's cheaper and it's just like just dispose of the body. So, why do I bring all this up? I'm sorry for the long winded yeah, kind no. of response, but I think you can't you can't ask these questions without understanding that you know once you desac- so my my professor Father John Bear he says you know it's like you know when you desacralize the beginnings and ends of life, you know so you forget that we're coming from somewhere, you know from the divine, and that we're going somewhere at the end, right? Like that when we leave this life, we are there is the eternal. When you get rid of that. All you have left is this life, and when you have all, the, when all you have is this life, then inevitably your life will descend into hedonism. Mm-hmm. Because if there's nothing else, then you better just have as much pleasure as possible. You better enjoy yourself as much as possible in this life, because when you're dead, you're dirt, you're done, right? Yeah. And so 
the focus becomes hedonism, hedonistic lifestyle, which is what the Western world is. It's all about pleasing every every uh, passion we have, every impulse, every everything, right? Everything from Amazon delivering, you know, same day or other day delivery to Uber Eats to DoorDash to you name it. Um, everything is about satisfying whatever impulse and whatever craving we have as fast as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, if that is the outlook of what most people, or if that is the conditioning that we're receiving, right? And if my goal is pleasure or to, to satisfy myself or to have a happiness and joy all the time, um, then, of course, as soon as that's not possible, why wouldn't I kill myself? Yeah. Why would I kill myself? Why, what, what what benefit is there to suffering? I'm 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 gonna exit. Bye bye. Right. Yeah. And so this is a big problem. Yeah. So this is why you see increase in abortion because we don't obviously we, we don't value life. Right. We value life only when we want it. Right. So you know when the baby's in the womb, we call it a baby when we want it when we want it. But when we right. don't want it, we call it a fetus. Right. It's it's a word game. Right. Right. So, you know, abortions are up. It's a form of, of birth control, unfortunately, right? We're just killing the babies. And then, of course, we kill ourselves, at, not even at the end of life anymore. Um, yeah. Is, 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 the, uh, is the church against uh, C-sections? No, not, not per se. No. Yeah. No, the church, the church is not uh, – what I like about the Orthodox Church, as opposed to, for example, other churches, is that – there are guiding principles, but there are not blanket prescriptions, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, oh, we're against C-sections. Well, no, that's dumb. Like sometimes you got to do a C-section. Like my wife had two because of medical issues, right? Like, you know, it's no. But what, what the guiding principle is, though, is that, you know, you would try to birth naturally, right, uh, for the experience, right? Yeah of bringing a child into the world as naturally as possible with the with least amount of, because a C-section is still a major surgery, right? There are more risks. Oh, yeah. There yeah. are more risks to your child and to the mother doing a C-section than there is naturally birthing, right? So like, for example, when parents choose the C-section for no good reason, except for convenience, you're actually putting your child and the mother's life into more peril because you don't want to go through the pain of giving birth. Whereas giving birth would have been safer. Now, we're not talking about medical situations where you have to do a C-section, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. The, the guiding principle is, well, I, I'm doing a selfless act, right? I want to do the best for my child. So I'm going to try. So I'm not going to avoid suffering, right? Um, yeah. Because it's just convenient or it's easier. Right. And, and it has to do with courage. It has to do with, with, with integrity. It has to do with character. All these things that build us up that make us like, you know, strong people right and um and the more we avoid suffering and we always take like the easiest way out the less we are we 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 cultivate that ability within us to deal with the real pressures of life that's why people depression is up you know uh, medications all mental health problems it's like a pandemic why is it a pandemic because nobody knows how to deal with normal pressures of life that our parents and grandparents were dealing with just fine for millennia Mm -hmm. Yeah. And suddenly now we can't deal with life, even though we live in the most affluent, most richest time in the human history, where we have way more money and resources and everything more than any other person ever in the history of mankind. And we are the saddest and most, most mentally ill. I don't, so how does that work? Right. 
it's the antithesis of what you would expect. Yeah. So like, I, I didn't expect to go into that, but like, why is that? Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Because we lack the tools to deal with adversity, right? You, you have to suffer in life. It's not like because we want to suffer, but you have to like, you have to face adversity and overcome to build character within yourself. Right. So and when did these tools, parents, when did these tools disappear then from our society? Cause like you said, our parents were, were fine. Like depression and, and all these things weren't as prominent yeah. as they are today. So like when, when, when did that, that disconnect happen where like people that weren't accessible to these tools anymore? Like, well, it's happened? not, um, it's a gradual thing. It's not something that happens like a switch of a, you know, a flick of a switch. Right. But, and there are multiple factors, right? So of course, one of the factors is spirituality, right? So authentic spirituality, which preaches, you know, the bearing of one's cross, right. You know, taking responsibility, you know, again, this is why like Jordan Peterson, who's not even a Christian, why is he so popular? Because everything he's espousing from, even from a secular point of view is extremely Christian, right? You know, bear your cross, pick up your damn cross, trudge up the hill, you know, make your bed, take responsibility, shoulder burden, right? The most burden you can, because it will build within you a strength and a character, and it will, it will give you a satisfaction when you overcome, right? These are all the things that the generation before us and, and two generations before us, they did. They had world wars, they had famines, they had other pandemics, they had all these things, and they did not have the resources, the money, the food, the internet, the these stupid things we carry around, these smartphones, whatever. They didn't have any of these things. They actually had to work for it, right? And so, you know, and they also had this kind of backbone of spirituality, the nuclear family. There was like, a, there was a matrix of things happening which kind of supported, you know, building character within people. And now in the last, I would say maybe, especially in the last 30 years, I would say, right? you have the breakdown of many of these kind of like uh, aspects of the matrix, right? So you have, you have, um, you know, the breakdown of the nuclear family, right? In favor of no family of the family is even seen as a, as a, as a symbol of white privilege, you know what I mean? Like the, the nuclear family, right? Um, so it's like, you have single parenthood going up, you have the, 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 you know, the absence of father figures, which is a huge problem, right? And we can, we can track this statistically, right? You have the education system going down. You have, you know, different political ideologies. You have the sexual revolution. You have, you have the uh, cheap and easy access to birth control, which, you know, separates the act of sex from the act of love, uh, from, from, the, uh, from the, the experience of love and family, right? It becomes something secularized, right? And weaponized and things like that. Um, there is, you know, the, the, the lack of religion. So let less people go to church, less people believe in God. So there is no, there's not a healthy fear of the divine or a, a humility, right? Any of that, all these things. And of course, mm-hmm. then of course, the, the, the proliferation of technology, right? Easy access to information, easy access to everything. And also uh, income has, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that contribute um, to this kind of like, spiritual slash physical laziness that exists in our society today just here because it's not everywhere in the world like this yeah right um and i think that and, i would also think, you know, I, I would also throw into that like sort of what we were talking about all these bills and stuff i don't think there's ever been a time where government has been so um involved in like our our lives and you know in terms of like what we can do in our homes like can we go to mm-hmm. can't go to church and um government is becoming so uh involved in our lives like with with these implementation of these bills and 
in conjunction with media and in thing in society in terms of like how uh, we should behave or things we shouldn't do. And we get, we, we get who we elect, though, right? So it's like it's not like the government came from another planet, right? It's we've elected these people and and we don't hold them to account as a people like we we, we tend to see the, the government as um, this monolith it's the, the other it's like the bad government that's oppressing it's like yeah but they're us we are just people who are elected right so we we complain about the government and okay we should especially when they do things that um are, are contrary to our our basic freedoms let alone our religious beliefs uh but we're the ones who have elected them right and we, we put them in those positions. And when it comes time to oppose, we don't oppose, right? Yeah. So like you mentioned, for example, government getting involved. Look what happened with the lockdowns, right? It's like, okay, most people didn't like a lot of the aspects of the lockdowns and, and whether wherever you stand on it, right? Again, right or left, some people were pro, some people were against. But in the end, it's like a lot, most people who did not like, for example, certain measures, we're also not going to stand up and say anything about it. Yeah. And why? Because we lack that fortitude. We lack that, that courage, right? Because we've never had adversity in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. The biggest yeah. adversity is, is, you know, like, you know, what, what am I going to wear in the morning when I, or, you know, what's, you know, where am I going to go for dinner? Right. It's like, so we don't have like this kind of like hunger or this zeal within us to stand up for certain rights. Right. So, um, and then of course that allows, people who are above us to kind of walk all over our rights and freedoms right so um because look, look, look what happened like with the truckers right big controversial yeah. subject right the truckers is, a, is an example of an oddity within canadian culture because canadians are very docile and very passive and suddenly you had this group of people massive group of people who were supported by many many more people from their homes as far as like you know more support and financial support right who actually went against who bucked the system right and and it was so strange for Canadian government to to, to come you know come face to face with this. Um, again, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, I'm not taking I'm not going there, right? Um, it's just it was such a, a a strange thing that what did the government do? They invoked the Emergencies Act, yeah. <laughs> which now there's a, the, the public inquiry starting today, actually yeah, yesterday. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, to, you know, so they evoke something that is only done during wartime when there's like a terrorist plot or something. There's, it's like the, 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 the sovereignty of the country is like at, at stake for a protest in one city, in one municipality in the country. Right. But it just goes to show you that it's like they our politicians. They didn't know how to deal with this. They have no way of communicating, no way of having conversation. Right. So it's just we just we just crush it. We do. We, we, we use dictatorial kind of like, um, you know, powers because we don't know what else to do because we've never seen this before. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's a straight. So it's, it just goes to show you though. It's like, how docile are we? How, how ill-equipped we are yeah. to deal with, uh, with conflict. I agree. I, I like what you said about we, we've never, um, people didn't stand up or lack the fortitude to stand up because we, we lack adversity in our lives. And I think that that quote that has been floating around for a while now, it was from an author, I can't remember his name, but, uh, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. I think that's, yeah. we're well, living, cyclical, right? Yeah. We're yeah, living in exactly. that weak men create hard times yeah. moment right now. Yeah. And um, I think that goes all the time over yeah, and over again. For sure. Uh, so speaking of uh, the topic of, of children, like we're both fathers, of course, uh, your, your mm -hmm. kids are older, so you have more experience than I do. So 
you know, seeing the world, like everything we, we talked about in this country we're living in and, and just how seemingly opposed uh, the society and the culture is compared to like our values. When I say our values, like, you know, Christian values or religious mm-hmm. views, like how do you think about instilling the right values to your kids and ensuring those values don't get uh, corrupted by outside forces, which which kind of seems very easy nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how are you um, thinking of that? The only way to do it in a multicultural society is to um, is to walk the walk. And what do I mean by that? Uh, you can't skip. You can't cut corners as a parent. So, and what do I mean by that? I mean that, and one of the driving forces of what changed my life at least uh, about four years ago when I had to kind of take stock of what I was doing is that you can't be absent from your children's life. You can't preach something that you don't, you don't do, you don't keep in your own life Uh, because children, like you're the first, the parent is the first teacher. The parent is the first priest. And what do I mean by that? It's like religion. It's like, if you want your kid to be religious, you should be religious. And if you're not, your kids are not. So it's very simple. Children look up to their parents, for better or for worse, right? Even bad parents. That's why so many people are screwed up, right? So it's like, you know, even children are always looking for the approval and love of their parents. This is the way we're built. So understanding that is that, and that's a great responsibility as well. Our children are always uh, need that. And so whatever we give them and whatever we model for them is what, not they're going to be exactly like us, but that's the best, like, you have the front row seat to their education, right? More so than the schools, more so than the government, more so than their friends, what happens in the home. And the pro- so anytime I see, like, when parents come to me, which they often do, and they complain about their kids and say, oh, my kid doesn't go to church. My kid doesn't do this. It's like, well, do you? Well, I go now. It's like, yeah, you go now in your old age because yeah. you decided that in your old age, church was important or maybe you got scared with something and you think, Oh, I better put in my time for God. It's not how it works. It's like, so it's just, you can't cut corners. You can't, I see it. Like I did camp. So I helped start the Orthodox summer camps in Canada 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now. Okay. And I, I was involved with it for about 20 years before I kind of stepped out of that. And what was the one, the camp programs that we have. And now they started here in Toronto, camp metamorphosis. And now it's across the country. We have like five different camps. Yeah. Uh, it's a phenomenal program. It does so much good. But the heartbreaking thing of that program is, is that you bring these kids to camp. You take away their cell phones. We take away all the stuff. They're in the woods. They're in cabins. They're they're doing um, you know they're doing orthros like matins and, and and vespers every night in English. They're reading these beautiful prayers and they're learning how to pray and they're doing confession. And they're whatever. They're in communion with nature and all these wonderful things, right? So they 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 go for that week and then by the end of the week they're very enthused about the faith they're like oh yeah. we never knew all this stuff and uh, the priests are very accessible here and they speak english to us and this and that and we're very very excited right so the kids leave camp after a week and we give them the services you know they take the services home with them you know they're these kind of abbreviated versions of the services in english they can pray at home and they get home and more often than not like 90 percent of all the kids what happens when they get home they get home and they're excited they tell their parents about the experience and I say, Mom, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm going to go. You want to you read Vespers with me? And the parents say no. Because the parents don't care. Mm-hmm. The parents think they're going to send their kids to camp so they can get their religion. 
The parents don't take any responsibility or ownership over the spirituality of their children. So the parents kill that spark. They smother it uh, as soon as the kids get back home from camp. And then the kids get disillusioned. They say, well, I went there and it was kind of like this, this Shangri-La of Orthodox life. And then I go back to the real world and my parents don't want to go to, don't want to take me to church. They, I can't hang out with my Orthodox friends. I, we don't pray at home. We don't, uh, there's nothing sacred happening in the home. So that just kills it. And maybe the kid goes back again to camp next summer and gets another dose of it. Yeah. And that's good, but, right? So no, the no. parents are killing, or, or the parent that drives up and drops the kid off at Sunday school on Sunday and the parent goes off to Starbucks. It's insane, right? So we have these, these phenomenons more often than not. Um, so the only way is, is you got to be involved in your kid's life. You got you to gotta walk the walk. So if you want them to pray, you got to pray with them. If you want them to read the Bible, you got to read the Bible with them. If you want them to go to church, you got to go to church. If you want them to fast, you got to fast. If you want them to commune, you got to commune with them. Um, you got to do all those things and then they'll follow suit. And even then it's not guaranteed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even if you do all those things and you've given them the best, the best uh, foundation, they could still reject it when they get older. And that's fine. Like it's not fine, but you know what I mean? Right. Um, but at least you did your best. At least you didn't yeah. handicap their spiritual growth, but that's the best. And, and, you know, you tell parents that and they don't want to hear it. It's, it's like the most basic, simple advice. And I, it, but yeah, it's, it's, I feel like harder for, for a lot of parents to, to implement and take mm -hmm. action on um but yeah i think that's that's solid advice um something else i want to ask you about which i think uh, um a lot of people especially new generation can relate is about marriage and uh, i think the latest stat i read in like 40 percent of marriages in canada will end up in divorce um mm -hmm. i i think that's higher but whatever let's say 40 percent. so I, I i think it's clear nowadays and you alluded to it uh earlier but more and more people are, are they're not getting married for the right reasons. And, and the sanctity of marriage is deteriorating amongst many other things. Uh, so what's your advice to married couples today or those planning to get married? That's a big one too. <laughs> um, like I, again, I can only speak from the Orthodox point of view, right? So it's, it's a, listen, you can't talk about these things in a vacuum, right? So this is a generational problem. Like if, 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 um, if a couple, like all the couples that I marry, I, I don't want to say that I have a good track record on whether I know just from the meeting, whether they're going to divorce or not. But the reality is I do. And the signs are there, right? So, um, and you can't say that mm -hmm. because what if you're wrong, right? And um, you know what you want. You don't want to discourage them, but um, yeah, it, it, it's by the time you get to marriage, by the time you get to the point in your life where you want to commit to another human being, if you don't already have certain foundations from your family and your faith that are already in place and that have already formed you and your character, your personality, it doesn't matter who you marry because your your presuppositions going into it. Are, are, are already incorrect, right? So I'll give you an example again. It's like mixed marriage, right? Mm -hmm. You're in a mixed marriage yourself, right? So, um, which is a very, very popular and very, very common thing because we live in a, we're in a multicultural society. Okay. Mixed marriages can work just fine, right? 
but that it, but it requires the couple, the people who are going to do it, let's say from two different, two different religious backgrounds, like Catholic and Orthodox, let's say, right. Um, that you need to have some discussions beforehand, some honest discussions on, you know, the big stuff, like not just forget about just finances and careers and things like that, but like just basic morality. It's like, what do we think about this? What do we think about that? Mm-hmm. How are we going to raise our children? What are children going to be? How is that going to work? All these things have to be worked out before. And the problem is that people, because because they often don't prioritize, they're not priorities for them. So a cradle Orthodox person who's born into the faith, you know, or baptized as a young, no one's born into the faith, but you're baptized as an infant. You know, if, if, if the person doesn't go to church, doesn't care about any of that stuff, and then, okay, well, already your criteria of what kind of partner you want and what kind of person you're looking for is already tainted by a secular worldview as opposed to religious worldview, right? Yeah. So you know, a young man, let's say, who goes in to go find a bride, what is his criteria? Like, what is he attracted to? What is he looking for? If he, if he, if, if, if religion, like his, his faith is not even part of the equation, then it ain't going to be, he's going to seek out a, a secular type of person. And then he's going to be upset when that person doesn't want to get married in his church. Or when that person doesn't want to baptize the kids, like, what did you expect? Right? Like myself, for example, when I was a young man, you know, okay, I was religious. I was involved, heavily involved in the church. So that obviously influenced, right, my dating when I got to the age of dating. You know, like uh, I, I had not a lot of criteria, but I'm like, well, I'm not going to marry a non-Orthodox Christian. Why? Because I want to be a priest and because that can't happen. So what's the point of even dating a person who's not Orthodox where I know it can't go anywhere? So I have, you know, so I eliminate that problem right there, right? But even if I wasn't becoming a priest, right, it's like, okay, well, let's say I date somebody who's non-Orthodox. Let's say a Catholic or a Protestant, right? Well, the be you know, I have to know that that's going to cause certain problems if that person is devout in their faith and they, we have different outlooks. So, yeah. but I have to know these things when I'm starting to date people, not to think of it as an afterthought when we're already engaged now and we're trying to, you know, back engineer the relationship to somehow shoehorn my spirituality into it. It doesn't work so, like that. So no one has these like conversations early on these like deep like no. what are our values how are we going to raise our kids like is that like the core of it there's like the lack of like upfront and communication and just deeper thinking well we, 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 we lack we lack the values we, we lack the actual foundation because if our parents didn't raise us religious then we're not going to be religious and then we think that suddenly when we we have this thought in our minds not everybody but a lot of people have this thought, like, I'm going to get married and then we're going to have this kind of beautiful nuclear family and we're going to go to church and we're going to baptize our kids. But you never, people never thought it through saying, well, I don't go to church now. Why would I go after I'm married? Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm not really, I don't know anything about my faith right now, right? How is that going to translate into me raising my children Orthodox? It's not because I just, you can't give what you don't got. Yeah. So this sure. is not a criticism. It's not like I'm yeah. saying it bad people. It's just. You're ill. It's like when we're talking about adversity. You're ill-equipped to raise your children or your or the next generation when you don't have the tool set, the the, the skill set, or the tools to do it. So it's like any job. Yeah. How how can I teach my child to be a carpenter if I'm not a carpenter? Like, <laughs> so how can I teach my child to be a fireman if I'm not a fireman? Like, or you know, like you know what I mean? Like, or how can I apprentice somebody if I am not a master in Me that too. field? Well, <laughs> joke. Yeah, no, I, know, I, I know what you're, you're saying, right. but that's that's, that's no, no, the symptom of the problem. I, I'm just yeah. joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, YouTube. that's uh, yeah. So, so like, we're you're you're born in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think like are a lot of uh, Greeks are like first generation here, like us? Like we're the first generation born in Canada. Um, all our parents, like speaking of Greeks, like I feel like religion is just part of our our culture. Like you grow up Greek is like attached to being Greek is like being Greek Orthodox, you know, it's like one of those things. Um, the, our, the next generation, like our, our kids, not saying your kids, cause like, I guess it's different for you, like being a priest, uh, like me, for example, and like other first generation uh, Greeks, do you think there's just going to be a huge uh, like drop off in like the religion and people who, who attend church and like by generation or? <sighs> It's going to be, it's hard to say because we don't have numbers because we don't, the church, unfortunately, the Orthodox Church, at least here in Canada, we, we don't, we don't poll our people and we don't, we don't dig into the numbers. So like, we don't have any information, right? We, we, I think we're afraid to have information. So um, what do I mean by that? It's like, we have no, con- we have no idea what our current numbers of faithful are. So we have numbers like how many people get baptized in every parish every year. Right, because we we send paperwork into the archdiocese and they log everything in the registry department, so we know how many weddings and how many baptisms and how many deaths, all that kind of stuff, right? But that doesn't tell you anything. That just tells you who's orthodox on paper. Yeah. So, but what you really want to do is you want to drill down into the numbers of out of so I'll do, like here in this parish, I do like sixty baptisms, let's say a year on average. That's a lot. I do about sixty funerals as well, so it's you know it's so people are like oh that's great. Well, you're replenishing. Right, like 60 are going, 60 are coming. Not really, because of the 60 families, um, how many of them go to church? Yeah. They may have baptized their kid, but if the kid doesn't show up and the family doesn't show up, effectively, effectively they're not orthodox. They're, they're, they're orthodox on paper. Okay, the door is open, but effectively they're gone, right? They're, they're living secular lives. So if that's the case, oh, how many of them? So out of the 60, I would say maybe three. Hmm. So, and, 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 and my, my, my bar is really low. I'm like, that's like come to church once a month, yeah. which is not good, but it's something right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if it's only three out of 60, you do the math, right? So we, we, we need to have like uh, a census or some kind of study to see what is the percentage of the annual baptisms of people who are actually involved. Same thing with weddings. Uh, and then you get your real numbers and then that would scare the crap out of everybody because then we would realize that we're, we're, we're much smaller than we think we are. We're not doing as well as we think we are. Yeah. Um, the pool is much smaller as far as active Orthodox Christians. And then you start asking the question, well, then, then you can kind of like not predict, but you can kind of extrapolate what the next generation is going to be like. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's going to go down before it goes up again. Or mm-hmm. it's going to, or, or or the emphasis is going to um, shift to maybe converts mm-hmm. to uh, those who those who are non Greeks who are coming into the faith who are more zealous and then they start having kids and then they start promoting so the, the cultural change yeah um, so that might happen uh, you know in the states it's happened the states are like fourth generation there's a, they've gone through these growing pains right yeah I was going um, to ask you about isn't the states like a good like if you want a case study, I guess, on what happens when you're a few generations deep. 
it's a case study. I don't know if it's a good case study because we're not the same country as the United States, right? There are different factors here. So the United States, they made a decision very early on that they had to, they were prioritized their orthodoxy over their Greekness, over their, you know, their, their, their Greek culture and to their, to their, um, to their benefit because a lot of them don't even speak Greek anymore, but they're Orthodox mm -hmm. and their churches are growing and they have very strong churches and organized. Whereas in Canada, we're still first generation. We have an identity crisis here. We don't know what we're doing. We, we, we don't know if we're a cultural club or if we're, an, or, or if we're preaching mm -hmm. the gospel. Yeah. And, and so until we figure that out, we're going to keep losing people. Um, we're not going to be very evangelical in the sense that we're not going to be reaching out to local communities and bringing Canadians in who need to be baptized. Um, and that's going to hamper our, our growth as well. And even our sustainability, because because Greeks are not going to keep having kids, and like you you see like and mixed families, mixed marriages, they're not fully Greek anymore. So it's not about being Greek; it's about being Orthodox, right? Yeah. Um, so and that's going to dilute even more and more, which is fine. It's part of you know going to a new country. Uh, so if you don't put emphasis on the religious aspect, on the, on the preaching of the gospel, um, you're going to lose. If you if you if you think it's a cultural club, that's going to die. Yeah. That's the model you're going to take. So we don't know what's going to happen in Canada because in Canada it's a different uh, beast, right? Different political climate. Uh, Americans tend to be more community driven. They, they like all Americans. It's a part of the American culture where they're much more connected to their local parishes, the local communities, whether they be Orthodox mm -hmm. or Protestant or whatever. They, they tend to be more generous to their not not with their time and their money uh, to their local communities. Uh, Amer Canadians are not. Mm. Canadians are more passive. And, and Canadians, are ironically, are more secular. Hmm. So, interesting. Yeah. Who so knows? Fundamental differences. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, who knows what's going to happen in the future? I hope we do the best we can. Right? We plant the seeds, and yeah. Who knows? Um, we're well over an hour, but there's one uh, last uh, topic or question here. So, um, mm -hmm. living in again, growing secular society, as we said, um, a society that's becoming overly sensitive to say the least you know with that being said there there's a lot of uh controversial passages in the bible that many people whether they're religious or not would find controversial nowadays and a lot of agnostic people especially will say you know you know how can you believe in the bible when it says this or that about women and gays etc so how do you view and, in, and interpret some of those controversial passages and like what's your response to that type of commentary well, it's the again. So the Bible, it's the moral Christian morality, right? As far as like the morality that is is laid out in the Bible is it's clear and it's unchanging, right? And the Orthodox Church doesn't change towards that. Um, the application of that morality, as far as you know, how you enforce that. I don't even like the word enforcing because the Orthodox Church does not see itself as an enforcer of anything. Um, nor as a punisher of anything, right? The Orthodox Church's job is to, as we said before, it's to facilitate the salvation of the individual. And it's, it's, it's a medicinal, it's a therapeutic approach. This is how confession is. Like, so confession, for example, between, let's say, Orthodox and Catholics, the Catholics take a very punitive approach, a legalistic approach, right? It's like, you know, you sin, you are, you are offending God, right? It's like, you know, you have a debt to pay and you're going to go and you can confess and then you have to do penance, right? To pay it off. Hence mm -hmm. why they have purgatory and things like that. In the Orthodox Church, we don't have that. In the Orthodox Church, confession has nothing to do with punishment. It has nothing to do with, with making a person feel guilty. They already feel the guilt. That's why they're going to confession. 
the confession is more like a liken to going to a doctor's office and giving your symptoms. And the, and the priest is more like the doctor, the spiritual doctor who is taking in the symptomatology and then diagnosing the problem and then giving the proper medication so that the person can be healed, made, made whole. So there's no punishment there. It's, it's more like, okay, let's look at some certain spiritual exercises to make you be able to overcome, right? So I, I bring this up because the application of morality, whether we disagree or agree with anything in, in, in modern society, and there's lots of things that we disagree with, right? Uh, and of course, we take we take a very hard stance in the sense of what is marriage between man and a woman, right? You know, um, what is Christian morality on homosexuality and things like that? You know, and it's like we, we do not consider them to be correct, right? But the application of it, like, so for example, it's like, well, does that mean, though, that we um, we vilify and we um, we go after and we oppress and uh, individuals who are dealing with these problems? No, we do not, right? We, we are all part of the body of Christ, uh, or these baptized Orthodox Christians, and the approach would be medicinal. The approach would be to help heal the person and to integrate as much as we can without without compromising our, our morality, right? So, um, you know, it, it's very nuanced, right? And it's very complex. And usually these kind of uh, ethical and moral issues are dealt with between the individual and their spiritual father, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to monolithic kind of like blanket statements about everything. Like, you know, will we ever have gay marriage in the church? No, we would never have that, right? Because we consider, you know, marriage to be between a male and a female. And it's, it's a sacrament, right? It's a sacrament. It's not a, it's not a, a, a political statement, nor is it just like yeah. a, a civil contract, right? Um, and, you know, there, there are varying reasons why that is the case, right? It's not just because the Bible says so, and we, we don't have time to get into all that. But, um, but that doesn't mean, though, that the church also cannot show compassion and love and, uh, and understanding to people who are, who are struggling with different aspects, right? Um, I, th I think the big problem with society right now is, is that we have hyper-sexualized everything, mm -hmm. and we have hyper-focused on certain issues over other issues, so the big, the big hot ticket items are, you know, transgenderism, right? Uh, gender studies, homosexuality is not even an issue that's even talked about anymore because we've moved on to more kind of radical extremes, right? Um, where homosexuality right now is considered, it, it seems relatively normal and conservative compared to the other things that we're seeing right now, right? Um, but the church would say, it's like, well, why are you hyper-focusing on just these issues, Right? The church would say, well, the human being is like uh, on this big spectrum of like human experience, right? And we, we have a plethora of different human experiences and sin, which is missing the mark, right? Missing like, you know, the, the goal, which is to be Christ-like, right? Is on this massive spectrum, right? We're not all the same and we all falter on different, you know, on different ways, multiple different ways, right? And for us, all of it's bad. All of it is like... Anytime you miss the mark, you're missing the mark. It doesn't matter what, what it is, right? And everybody is, is worthy of God's love and everybody's worthy of, 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 uh, of acceptance as a human being in the image of Christ, right? And, um, and everybody is, is worthy of compassion, right? Um, so it's not just that one thing. Like, what about all the other sins that we commit? Yeah. Right? What about all, like, am I better than, am I better as a sinner with my personal sins? Are my sins less sinful than, let's say, a homosexuals or a transgender? You know, like, why? Why are my sins any less? Yeah, my sins, are, my sins are just as bad, right? Yeah. So we're all in need of healing, right? That's that's the approach. It's like that, that we don't we don't 
pick out this is really bad, this is really bad, or this is no, no, no. It's all it's all it falls short yeah. of the glory of God, right? This is the the orthodox approach, uh, the mentality, right? As opposed to just like singling out people, whatever, you know. Yeah. It's just we don't like labeling people. We don't like, um, and we don't like identifying people with the sin. That's a problem. So once you start using the, the word, like the actual sin, as as an identity, that's a problem in a society. Yeah. And forget about forget about the hot hot issues. Like for example, if somebody commits murder, right? Well, from an orthodox point of view, right, we shouldn't call them a murderer. Mm. You right. are the image of God. You are a human being. You committed the the horrible act of murder, committed the sin, right? But you do not personify murder. Like, you know, once you start calling the person by their sin, it becomes part of their identity. Right. Yes, I'm a murderer. That's all I am. Yes, I'm a thief. All I do is steal. No, no, you are the image of God. You, you are loved yeah. by God. And even if you make these horrible mistakes, you can repent, you can change, you can, you can restore what you are, right? So this is the problem. It's like that, that, that there are certain hot topics in society and they've appropriated the language and they've identified, I am this, I am this, I, I embody this. As opposed to saying, I struggle with these things, but it's just a part of me. It's not, it's not the thing that makes me who I am. Yeah. Right? Yeah, makes sense. Um, bringing up again the, the topic of, uh, you know, you, like, you mentioned these hot keywords now, a lot of like hyper focus on like gender and sexualization, all this. And I know we talked about uh, religion being under attack, which has always been the case uh, throughout history. But um, do you think that uh, sexualizing young kids, which is happening now in schools and in media and like these bills that we're talking about, like, would you say that's, I would say that's a pretty easy way to attack the core nucleus of, of, and a core family value where you can put things like that into a young impressionable kid early on and um, just get them to start, you know, thinking in ways that they probably shouldn't be thinking at these age. And it sort of like attacks the, the core family. Yeah. Obviously, if you want to change uh, society's way of thinking about an issue, you, you attack and you, um, you begin to um, re-educate the young, right? Because if you plant the seeds from the way young, it's going to be normalized when they get older. This is why you have such emphases in, in early childhood curricula, right? About a lot of different issues, right? Um, to kind of re-educate and to kind of, you know, um, you know to, to train up a new generation thinking in a new way. And of course, this is problematic when, when the things that are being taught are considered to be highly immoral and also highly, you know, um, not even scientific anyways, but that's another story altogether. Um, and again, but this comes back to the parents, right? You got to watch what's being taught in your school. You have to keep an eye like a hawk and you need to make sure that you, as your children grow, because of course they're going to, you know, there's different age appropriate things you can discuss, right? Um, but you need to be on the ball as a parent and to educate your kids. And I'll give you, again, I'll give you a practical example from my family, right? It's like my, my daughter is in. Now she's great. Now she's grade five, right? She's 10 years old. But like when she was in grade three, three, right? So uh, almost three. So three years ago, um, her teacher tells her, just 
25 year old teacher just out of teacher's college mm. tells her that men can give birth really right tells mm-hmm. a grade three so my daughter comes home and is confused how men can give birth mm. and now i am placed in 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 the situation as a parent i am forced now to not only explain because she's old enough to understand right but not but it's still too early but She's old enough, though, to kind of understand the concept. But now I'm I'm forced into a position where I have to explain to her that the teacher's wrong because a male, a biological male, can. Now I understand what the, I understand what the teacher's trying to impose on my child. The teacher's mm-hmm. trying to say that you know a biological woman who transitioned to be a man but still has a uterus, right? And this is confusing the children. Children don't understand this, right? And it's 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 going to mess up their understanding of, of sexuality, right? Um, so now now I have to basically, you know preemptively, you know, do sex ed with my kid. And it's better that it's me doing it than them. Right. So I have to sit there and explain to her now how birth works. And of course, okay, you know, I, I found age appropriate material to deal with. Right. And not, not too graphic and things like that. And, you know, you, there's ways to do it, but you have to go to a certain degree into detail because she doesn't understand why a man can't give birth. You have to explain what a uterus is and you have to explain, you know, what sperm is and all this kind of stuff, which you don't want to have a conversation with your grade three child who's eight years old, right? Uh, Or seven years old. But you have to now so that you can explain, so they can understand why it's nonsense what's being taught to them and that they can can distinguish and they can use discernment to know when they're being lied to. So the parent has to kind of deal with this now and not just brush it off and say, oh, the teacher's wrong, but the teacher's in a position of power and authority over the child where the child looks up to the teacher. So it's like, what do you mean, daddy, that the teacher's wrong? Are they wrong about everything? It's like, well, no, they're not wrong about everything, but check in with me when something doesn't feel right. Yeah, for sure. Right? So this is hard. You have That's to like scary, you're forced yeah. in these situations. Yeah, but you have and, to do it though. Even scarier is if, if your kid uh, doesn't tell you about that and they just... Mm-hmm. You know, they don't they communicate take it at face value. And they just take it. And that's just sort of what they, they go along thinking that. And you as a parent don't but even know why, that that was. Yeah. yeah. But this is why you have to be uh, active, even like in parent teacher interviews or curriculum mm-hmm. nights where if you hear nothing, you should start asking some questions. It's like, yeah. what do you, like, can, can I have a copy of the curriculum for this year? Can I have a copy please of what you're teaching? What are the topics you're teaching for sex ed this year? Just so I know as a parent, right? And they have to provide it to you, right? So yeah. you can like, you know, uh, you know, so so you can know what the heck's going on. And and a lot of parents, because they're busy or they, again, they neglect their children, neglect their education. And I get it. They're tired. They're running around, whatever. But these things slip under the radar. And then yeah, the kid mm-hmm. is in high school and it's too late. They've already been indoctrinated, right? Yeah. It, yeah, and everyone's busy. Everyone's got things going on. But at least for me personally, and I think for most people should share this is like kids take precedent over everything, like top Correct. priority. So mm-hmm. make the time. It's the next generation, right? You have to yeah. you have to train them properly, right? Yeah. Uh, Sacrifice uh, other things. <laughs> yeah, you have to for sure. Uh, Father Ted, appreciate it. We were an hour and twenty minutes here. We can definitely keep going, but. Um, I'm sure uh, you got things to do, and sure. and so do I. But um, appreciate it. Always very insightful chatting with you, as always. So it was a pleasure, Costa. Anytime. Uh, it's always nice to kind of just talk about a plethora of issues. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I didn't, uh, you know, get, get too deep on, on certain things, but we should do this again sometime. Whenever you want. I'm always available. All right. Sounds good. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks again. Take care.